I'm Asan. It's Friday, and this is the Friday Show. It's the show that reckons playing against a 10-man Arsenal team and actually winning is just not for everybody. Joining me to look ahead to City's early Saturday kickoff against Chelsea, I've got the man who see I'm in, Mr. Steve Tudor, and the man who forces me to stop cursing match officials, Mr. Chris Wright. Morning, Chris. Morning, Asan. How are you, mate? I'm, I'm sprightly. I've been up since... Half six, so I feel as though I've had half a day already, and uh, and it's not even midday. But no, I'm good. I'm looking forward to the uh, to the weekend and looking forward to the football. What about you? Yeah, I've been up early as well. Went for a run. It's freezing here in Manchester at the minute, so but I do like it when it's cold. It's good. It's good. Lots of oxygen in the air. So yeah, I'm, I am really looking forward to the game tomorrow. Uh, feels like a really significant one. So yeah, it's been a long week. Been busy, but yeah, I'm. I'm All's well. Excellent. Mr. Steve Tudor, how do you feel about giving up your seat for the week? I'm fine with it, actually. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of times where we're doing a pod and I'm like, oh, I really want to say something about that. And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting stuck into it. I should say that you two being such go-getters this morning, I've had a couple of rounds of toast. I don't know if that counts, but <laughs> I've had some toast. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, it was lovely. <laughs> yeah, lovely, lovely. Well, look, to kick things off, um, I want to talk about, so City announced their revenues for the 2020-2021 season. And I guess the headline was that City have overtaken United in their turnover. Um, Steve, I'll start with you. Before we get into the specifics of overtaking United, I've got a more general question for you. Um, Has the finance of football become more of a talking point among supporters than you ever imagined it would? Or has it always been like this? Ah, man, that is a cracking question. That's right in my wheelhouse as well, because I was actually going to begin answering by discussing this, because I was going to say in a general sense, financial stories in football bores the absolute pants off me. Mm. Uh, And it's a real bugbear of mine that it's become such a big part of football these days I don't want to know what amortisation is I, I, I'm just not, I'm not that way inclined you know I, I got an E I think in my GCSE maths um, I want to watch football I'm interested in transfers and form and results the actual financial part is just not for me I'm not an accountant so it absolutely has taken over and it's become far too big a thing and um, and it's inflicted upon transfers as well I was thinking the other day how great it would be if if no transfer fees were disclosed and no one had any interest in them and all we talked about is what player should go to what club, I just thought football would be just much more fun and interesting place, although as you know, it's entirely unrealistic that that will ever happen. Um, yeah, so when a story like this breaks, ordinarily I have to say I shy away from it. I leave it to people who are cleverer than I am. Um, but this, this is a big story, man. This is... This is warrants for headlines, I think. And it even, you know, enticed me because we're now bigger than United off the pitch as well as on it. And that's amazing. (laughs) Um, Before we get into that story, another question for you, because you've you've set it up quite nicely. Um, When you say, like, you you wish that transfer fees weren't uh, announced or made public and and that we didn't have this discourse, um, does, does that imply that you'd prefer less transparency in the way that clubs are run and funded? Because that's something that, um, not necessarily me, but 
for example, Gab Marcotti, he, he bangs on quite regularly the opposite. He's like, every transfer fee should be disclosed in its, in its entirety for the sake of transparency. And there's too much kind of smoke and mirrors in finance around football. So where do you, where do you stand on that? Well, I don't want to be a hypocrite here because obviously I write about football and a lot of what I write about involves transfers. And the amount of times I've gone to check on something and it says undisclosed, mm. it's like, God damn it, you know, so... It certainly benefits me when they are disclosed. Um, yeah, like I say, it's an unrealistic aspiration. It's never going to happen. Uh, and, and you know, we've opened Pandora's box now, and this is how it is and how it's going to be. Yeah. Um, and, and you're right. You're absolutely right. Clubs should be more transparent. It is for the greater good. But it's just Twitter is what I'm referring to, really, and fans, and predominantly fans like me who don't really know, and yet we talk like we do know. I mean, if we're talking like someone like Colin, for example, Colin Savage, he knows his onions. I'll listen mm. to him, and that's great, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, you know, inform me, please, about this. I'm interested about this, because you know what you're talking about. Whereas, you know, kind of Salah, four, six, seven, eight, doesn't have a clue about kind of financial implications of another football club. Mm. Um, and yet they talk like they do. So, and, and also, we could bring in things like Jack Grealish. Again, this is a completely unrealistic thing, but in an ideal world, wouldn't it be great if transfers could be broke down to cheap, average, and expensive? And so all we're told is Jack Grealish is expensive and not £100 million. If we could just <laughs> categorise him and just break it down that way, then I might be interested. Otherwise, I don't care kind of about... Uh, oh, kind of amortization, as I say, and how how a transfer fee is broken down, it just does not interest me. Okay, um, Chris, looking at City versus United again. Before we get into the idea of City have overtaken United, because I've got some some opinions on that as well. But um, do you think do you think that times have changed in the sense that if you look back to we're all of a of a of a similar vintage, right? So we all remember. Um, the modern day Man United and, and kind of the how it was built post the advent of the Premier League and how actually they were the commercial model that not just the rest of the Premier League, but all the big clubs around Europe, they all looked at Man United, looked at their kind of commercial drive, the internationalism of what they were doing, how it was generating revenues. And that not only became the model, but it was actually lauded, right? Mm. Do you feel that the same thing is true now? Do you think that the same exists now where the the general consensus is that um, commercial success is something that should be applauded? It's, it pains me to say it, but United were pioneers in mm. regards to that. But what I think does distinguish United in their pomp through the 90s and the 2000s and and what is regarded as commercial success now is that united made genuine profits whereas whereas now it's it's somebody you know people measure it in terms of commercial revenue in terms of turnover but actually the, the profit margin seems to have become unimportant and people are indifferent towards it last week we talked about how football occupies a a, a particular space in the cultural landscape of the way people can feel like they can talk to each other and refer to each other. And I think the same thing applies to, 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 to the finances as well, is that there's no other industry 
where, the, where, t- where revenue is so high, turnover is so extraordinary, and yet profits are so low. So many of the top teams around Europe, their business model, it works in that they survive. But in terms of, in terms of the profits, it's shocking. You know, all you got to do is look at City this season with their massive increase in revenue and, and, and still, still being impacted by, by, by the pandemic. With, what is it? 1.2 million profits. So compare revenue to profits. It's like the business model, it, 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 it doesn't make sense at all. But I do think, I, I often think that amongst football fans, they will use commercial success and they will use the financial size of a club as a stick to beat an opponent with if they feel like doing it. Um, and, and, and I think that I, I, I do prefer transparency. I do have some interest because in, I'm an executive producer, so I do have some interest in like amortization and, and accruing costs. So I kind of I do, I do have like, you know, I'm quite curious about the way these big organizations do that. But I think that, that, that United at the time were out on their own. They were exceptional. Um, and it feels like it's a very different uh, landscape now. And, and as we know, transfer fees became meaningless pretty much at the point to which Mbappe and Neymar moved. And then yeah. it had this massive ripple effect on everything yeah. else. And so I, I, I think it's a strange one. I, I think all the inf- all the headlines around City um, uh, uh, just slightly to overtaking United really isn't about City. It's about United. Hmm. Steve, so let's look at City overtaking United. Um, kind of a two-part two-part for you. Uh, how do you feel about that? Just in a general, is it something that you're? That you know we can pat ourselves on the back about is it significant, um, or are you a bit kind of not bothered about it? And the second thing is, um, does it sit comfortably with you? So, for example, City announced last week the sponsorship deal with the Emirates Palace Hotel in um, in Abu Dhabi. Um, can we legitimately look at commercial revenue and pat ourselves on the back, or should we be a little bit honest and go well? You know, wh- however we bring the commercial revenue in is fine, but let's not pat ourselves on the back when really Sheikh Mansour might be, you know, basically moving from his left, moving money from his left hand to his right hand, which is more or less what the implication is from the from the watching world. And it's difficult not to agree with that on, to some extent when you see something like the Emirates Palace sponsorship. Does that make sense? It does, but you know, when you look at all the other sponsorship deals from elsewhere, I mean, that, that that's a small part of it in, in its, you know, in total. Um, I, I completely agree with that point, by the way. Yeah, but that would concern me if I was across the board. But it's not. I mean, City are now a global presence, um, a global commercial presence, and, and we've got kind of sponsorship deals with kind of big companies right across the world. Um, our reach is phenomenal, frankly, and. You look at the kind of revenue from the commercial aspect and how that is dramatically increased year on year and year and year, then they're doing something very right. Mm. They're doing something very well. And um, this will hurt United. This will hurt the Glazers so, so much. This will hurt the Glazers far more than City winning the FA Cup, for example. Um, so, from that aspect, that's great from a City fan, you know, it's, it's great to see. Um, as I said, I've got very little interest in this aspect of a, a football club, but that's not to diminish its importance by any stretch. You know, it, it's vastly important these days. Clubs are huge, huge businesses, and they need all this kind of 
revenue to survive and to flourish. And then the knock-on, the trickle-down effect, I should say, of course, is signings for players and the health of our football club on the pitch. So it all ties in in one package for me. And, and so when I hear about this happening, this kind of increase in revenue, and it's a big jump as well, 17% from the previous year, then you think, yeah, we're in a healthy state here as a football club. That translates to a healthy football team. Hmm. Um, Chris, uh, do Abu Dhabi financially dope City's commercial revenue? <laughs> um, possibly. <laughs> Go on, lad. I, I, it's, it's, I, I've said this before. When it comes to football, there's a moral ambiguity that I have that I have I don't have in any other part of my life. Um, I, I think what's important is that City's model of um, out, external um, ownership is incomparable to any other model of a major football team across the globe. We, it, ours is clearly the most successful, the most sustainable and the most self-sufficient. Um, you know, the, the only, in terms of investment, you've got, the only thing you've got kind of comparable is, is PSG and then Chelsea. But as we know, PSG's business model is very reactive and Chelsea's is very erratic because it's it's very short term all the time. So I I I look at the Abu Dhabi investment and I think mm, that feels a little bit convenient. At the same time, just how many people in that part of the world have that level of income, have that level of um, of, of of financial resources? that can feed into a club like City. So all these things are inextricably linked. They are all connected. But by the same time, the owners are smart enough to be able to navigate the accusations and any interrogation around it. I would never be naive enough to say that it's it's all... I'd say it's all above board, but I think there is some, let's say, incestuous financial relationships which are taking place... at the club but um it does i don't lose sleep over it no i mean you know i think so firstly i don't think city are are financially doped i don't think their commercial results are financially doped i think one of the i think and i think it's a broader issue in in the kind of way that football is reported look the reality is that if you go to the boardroom of manchester united where the glazers sit or you go to the boardroom of of liverpool where fsg sit the people on that board will have very strong and close relationships to other commercial entities they might even sit on the board of directors of other commercial businesses and they may well enter into agreements or partnerships that benefit both on one in some way or in some fashion i think that it's very the 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 problem in abu dhabi is really that abu dhabi is 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 state investment right or that they as a state they invest in businesses and so it's very easy to trace that money back and they don't really try and hide it you know because they want to sponsor 
other commercial entities before they bought Manchester City Abu Dhabi were already out in the uh, in the marketplace I think the difference is it's really easy for United or for Liverpool to hide their corporate relationships with other big commercial entities it's really it's it's that simple when United pull in a noodle partner from somewhere right and everybody just goes oh that's that's amazing Nobody digs into that. Nobody goes, all right, well, who sits on the board of the Noodle Partners and what's their connection to the board of directors at Man United? Are they related? Are they mates? Do their kids go to school together? What's the value for the Noodle Partner? They don't see, you see what I mean? Like there's a, uh, there's a kind of, um, people want to look at City's finances forensically and they want to look at their transactions forensically, but they don't apply that to the rest of the league. Um, so no, I don't think we're financially doped. And the other reason I don't think our commercial results are financially doped, because it's widely reported that companies with a, with a direct connection to Abu, Abu Dhabi represent less than 10% of the turnover of Manchester City. So if the turnover's at 500 million, you're talking about less than 40 million of that. Yeah, less than 50 million of that coming from Abu Dhabi. It's not... You know, it's not making or breaking the football club. Now, I'll acknowledge the fact that when the lines with regards to FFP are so fine, yeah, that you can lose 30, but you can't lose 35 million. Sure, there might well, City might well be in a position where they can look at their finances, project the next 12 months forward, project how the wage bill is going to go up and begin to explore how they can bring in commercial partnerships to basically prop up those increases in wages but that's no different to any other football club that's no different to any other commercial entity and you can argue that oh well you know but it's dead easy for Abu Dhabi to just sponsor themselves well no nothing is dead easy right it's not that simple like it's not Mansour literally moving money from one hand to the other in the same way that when United go and look for a commercial partner to uplift their commercial revenues they might have a relationship, a strong relationship with Chevrolet or with somebody like, or with a bank, yeah? But at the same time, that strong relationship, the, the, the other business entity has got its own commercial considerations and has to make its own decisions. It's just people try and simplify it a little bit too much for me. And the same scrutiny that City's finances have been subject to for the last decade have never really been applied to United's model, which by definition is exploitative. Mm. United, the Glazers came in, they purchased the club from a loan, so immediately servicing a debt, and then they are paid fees to, to manage that debt whilst, manage, whilst managing the overall infrastructure of the club. So by definition, it is exploitative because, yeah. because they're, and if you, all you've got to do is look at Old Trafford as a ground. Zero investment since they've been there. They've invested in the playing squad, but they've not invested in the ground. Whereas the flip side is, if you look at what City have done, City's owners have invested in the ground as well as the playing squad. They've invested in the local community. They've invested in the wider infrastructure. And they have certain moral boundaries in terms of uh, uh, the number of people they, they must employ from a kind of from a three mile um, circumference or, uh, in the area of, of, of East Manchester obviously that benefits Manchester and that benefits the club and, and that is far less celebrated so there is, the, there is a rampant 
hypocrisy because the Glazers hide behind the tradition and the history of United. And as we know with United fans, you know, the majority are happy as long as they are succeeding. Um, and, and, and just that, that same level of scrutiny is not applied. Uh, and no. we, know that, we know there are reasons. There is a difference having an American owner and having an owner from Abu Dhabi. And if mm. there isn't a difference, I need someone to editorialize for me why the tone of the media coverage is so stark in its contrast. Mm. No, look, I mean, I think ultimately what people don't like, and, but also don't want to acknowledge, is that Abu Dhabi came in with a very clear business plan, and the business plan was to disrupt. And the nearest that I can see in the last 10 or 15 years right across the right across the business world is the amazon model city came in like amazon and went we'll lose money until we make it and once we start making money we'll be the market leader yeah and it might take us five years to become profitable it might take us seven but eventually we'll get there but and when we get there we'll be bigger than everybody else because of what we built and because of what we offer and that's exactly to my eyes that's exactly what they've done and it's just it's it's fascinating because I, I wanted to have this conversation because ultimately for me, I feel as though something like City overtaking United's revenues in the wider watching world, your Tarek Panjas are just going to make some snarky comment, right, about Mansour's investment. And I just think that that's so, it's, it is now so far removed from the reality of what, um, of what City have done that it, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's barely credible. Those guys are just barely credible. Anyway. <laughs> I, I, I did, just one thing I was going to say, just the last thing on it, is that um, I think more recently we, we, on this pod, we've been talking about how we need to really enjoy this golden period under Pep because it, it, it has just been beyond our dreams. And we are seeing something that we will not see again because Pep is unique in the way he, he approaches football. But I think for City fans, we need, to th- we need to feel reassured about the legacy of this financial growth over the last 10 years. Because it will be that, in a post-PEP era at, yeah. our, at our club, it will be that that will, that will sustain us and allow us to continue to be that huge player as we make that transition when Pep finally leaves, because we will have that infrastructure in place. And whilst it's not something that I think about too much, what I do know is... We've won so many things. It's been an incredible, like, you know, over a decade since the owners uh, arrived. But what, as well as Pep leaving a legacy of how to play football, the owners now have a legacy of, as a club, we are now secure and we will continue to grow. And that's hugely reassuring when we think about post-Pep because it means we can be able to have our pick of the best that, that, that is out there in terms of managers and coaching. So I think, if nothing else, ignore the, ignore the United narrative. City now have proven through the pandemic, which is the most challenging um, element that sport has faced for since probably since World War II when everything was paused, is we have survived, but also thrived from that. So the future looks really, really bright because of this, these kind of results. Spot on. Right. So let's talk about tomorrow's early kickoff. I don't like early kickoffs. I mean, the Arsenal Arsenal game was an early kickoff, and we were really bad. At least this week, we've we've got the uh, the benefit of being at home. Um, Steve, I'm going to start with you. To how? 
How do you think this game plays out in terms of, if you compare it to what went down at Stamford Bridge uh, mm. earlier this season, where City basically smothered Chelsea, dominated them, gave them not a sniff, and it was maybe the most comprehensive 1-0 I've seen in a long time. Um, do you think this game mirrors that? Well, this will be a very rare instance of me checking out the opposition lineup before I check out Cities, because mm. it's going to be fascinating to me to see what um, Tuchel does with his midfield. He can't go three holders again. There's not a chance. So if he doesn't go three holders again, who does he drop? He's not going to drop Kante. He's not going to drop Kovacic, who has been Chelsea's best player this season. Um, it's going to be Jorginho. Um, so that'll be my kind of... Um, that's my instinct anyway, but that's how he's going to go. And that's what Tuchel will have learned from that game at Stamford Bridge. Um, it, very, it kind of mirrors the Champions League final in a strange way. In the Champions League final, obviously, we all know that Pep didn't play uh, Rodri or Fernandinho, um, which kind of afforded, with Kante and, and Jorginho being superb that night, that afforded basically a lot of space for Mount and, um, what's his name, Pulisic, uh, the guy who scored, I can't remember his name now. Kai Havertz. Sorry, Kai Havertz. It, it afforded space for Havertz and Mount to exploit. Um, lesson learned there, which we saw at Stamford Bridge, Rodri, Rodri started, more balanced to the midfield, and City just smothered Chelsea's back, what was it, back eight? You know, he played far too defensive, Van Tuchel. So both managers would have learned from their respective mistakes there and their respective games, their respective defeats. So it's going to be really fascinating to see what plays out, because I believe that we will see from City almost an identical setup and almost an identical approach to what we saw at Stamford Bridge. We will look to get into him really sharp. Um, we scored 15 times in the opening 25 minutes this season. Um, it's, it's a real strength of City right now to just basically start on the front foot, start brightly, start sharply, and it's paying huge dividends. We'll look to really go at Chelsea from the off. Chelsea, meanwhile, will be playing two midfielders instead of three. They'll be more proactive. Let's not forget, they need to win. If Chelsea don't win, their title race is over, surely. Um, so it's going to be really fascinating. Um, I said there how often City have scored in the first 25 minutes. In the first 25 minutes, Chelsea have only conceded once all season. So something's got to give there. You know? mm. and, and so that first half hour is going to be absolutely fascinating. And I believe it'll basically be City, attack, 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 Chelsea just looking to hit on the break. Um, mm. So it's going to be really interesting from that from that angle. Chris, do you think that uh, Tuchel has to start Lukaku? And do you, what do you think suits City more? If they start with Lukaku or if they start with more of a Pulisic, Havertz, Mount type of front three? If Chelsea uh, have, have any authentic ambition... To, to put a push on for the title in the second half of the season. They have to get three points tomorrow. tomorrow. Mm. It's, it's that simple. A, a point it, it will, will not be enough because for Chelsea, this is a six-pointer in terms of their title yeah. challenge. And, and so it's critical that they cannot take um, the same approach as they did um, it, it, last year, they cannot sit back and be defensive. They have to. I, th I, I think if they if they look to play on the counter, I think I, I, I think it's something that they will regret because because I would imagine City will dominate possession and try and suffocate them as usual. I would prefer Lukaku to start, Same. because and I may regret this, but 
I think I think he's easier. He's an easier proposition for our centre halves to to manage, because because I still think that Lukaku's. Um, kind of conflict with Tuchel over the past two or three weeks. Obviously, it feels like a, a storm in a teacup. But I think Lukaku feels like he's like the Tuchel's not been getting the best out of him, almost playing him in a slightly one-dimensional role. And so I think that that, that most of the time, our, you know, Diaz and whether it's Laporte, it's more likely to be Laporte than, than, than Stones can handle him. I'm not, I'm not talking about physical challenge. I'm just talking about in terms of the intelligence of how to deal with, with what, you know, what is an old school kind of number nine. So I, I would very much like Chelsea to be proactive and come at us rather than, rather than sit back. So yeah, I would much more than prefer to have that pivot, that, that, that focal point at the front through, through Lukaku. I just think, I think that would just be much more conducive to, to us having a more attacking, creative game. Mm. Steve, if you look back to, to Chelsea-Liverpool from, I think, what, a week ago, two weeks ago, um, I felt that they were, that Chelsea kind of played a shit or bust game that night, that they were much more open and attacking in a way than I expected them to be. Um, and I, I guess it comes down to the fact that they they had to win. Both teams felt like they, they, they had to take the three points. Um do you expect Tuchel to do that again tomorrow, bearing in mind, as Chris has just said, that if they don't win the game, their title challenge is dead? Or do you think that he's going to pay Pep more respect than he played Klopp in terms of going, well, if I open up and I play like that against a Pep team, I might have my pants pulled down? No, I think he will set up similar to how he did against Liverpool. But when okay. I said earlier that Chelsea will be playing on the counter, that'll be through necessity. It'll be because City are just going to look mm. to suffocate them, and City will basically um, take the ball by the horns and you know dominate the narrative of the game. Certainly in the in the first half, that's what I believe. Anyway, so out of sheer necessity, Chelsea will be starved of the ball and just have to hit on the break. But they'll be doing so with a setup and the personnel that is far more open than what we saw at Stamford Bridge. Mm. So that really plays into our hands. The concern for me would be if we go in at the break nil nil. Um, then I would start to fancy Chelsea a lot more. Um, not that we'd run out of steam or anything like that, but I do believe that Chelsea will kind of get a foothold in the game and and then they've got more attacking personnel than they did against at the bridge. They're more of a threat than they were at the bridge. So, yeah, if we can kind of um, start brightly, start well, um, as always with City, it's about scoring early and then we can just control uh, matters. And if we do... I, I'm really confident for this one, I have to say. Um, that's not to kind of demean Chelsea. Um, I think out of everyone at 93.20, I've been the one really shouting the cause for, for Chelsea this season. Um, and I think possibly I've been proven wrong, or ultimately I will be proven wrong, but I still really rate this team. I still really rate Tuchel. I, I rate the, the, the squad that he has at his disposal. Um, so I'm not saying it's going to be, you know, in any way straightforward, but I'm really confident. Okay. Um, Chris, do you think that they're... Do you think that Chelsea have gotten through their... I think if you look at their December, they had a very poor December, right? And they dropped a ridiculous amount of points for a, for a, a so-called title-challenging team. Um, but they seem to have turned, turned the corner. I almost feel as though that Lukaku thing that happened with the interview has somehow benefited them is is that a stretch 
I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm always wary of, of something like that kind of being a sort of tipping point, really, mm. because it's just because it's it's all about emotion and it's all and it's all about attitude and and, and I just I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, they in five league games they what was I think they drew four and won one. Right, so effectively they dropped eight points, and it was over that period of time when their their, their title chance pretty much, you know, came to came to a halt. Um, I'm I'm not entirely sure. Okay, they've beaten they've beaten Tottenham, you know, twice over two legs, and obviously they beat Chesterfield as well. So in terms of their confidence, that's good. And in terms of Lukaku being um, you know sort of uh, reestablishing himself. Uh, in the team, that's good. I still do wonder if they're a better if they're a better team without Lukaku. Um, but I, I, I do think that there is against Chelsea, sorry, against Liverpool, I, I, as you've already described, they subscribe to that frenetic, reckless pace that usually mm. Liverpool really benefit from, and in on this occasion they didn't. And if I feel as if they really went against all their principles playing in, in the way they played Liverpool and they and they failed to control the game. The big thing that was missing from that game from both sides was a complete absence of failure. Uh, sorry, sorry, a complete absence of, of, of control. And that's why you, 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 you had this draw. So I think, you know, I think they're probably in a slightly better position uh, mentally because they've had some cup victories. But in terms of the league... I, I, you know, the next three or four fixtures for them will be really, really important. I imagine for Chelsea, the worst team they could be playing right now is City. Mm. But then if they win, it's the best team because it's a six-pointer. Um, so I, there's still a quality side. There's still, you know, it, it, it's the top three is going to be City, Liverpool and Chelsea, maybe in that order. But at the moment, I just want to see what, what Tuchel does to emerge from what has been a poor period of form. So I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not wholly unconvinced, but the minute I'm slightly unconvinced of how resilient they actually are. I would say kind of in Chelsea's defence, they've been missing some key players and a lot of people have pointed out the strength and depth that they have in their squad and saying, you know, oh, poor Chelsea, look look at all these players that are having to resort to playing. Their bench has still got this amount of, you know, worth of players. But I think it's a bit of hip- hypocrisy there if City fans do that because we know ourselves, if we miss Kevin De Bruyne, then Liverpool fans, for example, will say, oh, poor City, you've got, you're having to resort to Bernardo Silva or Gundo or whoever it is, you know, it's still Kevin De Bruyne. You know, mm. we're still missing a, a, an amazing footballer. And in Chelsea, missing Kante, as he did, that was so pivotal for them. I mean, you look at their results, and not so much their results, actually, but in terms of their goals conceded, when Kante's not there, when Kovacic isn't there, they struggle. And they're both back now, and they're both regaining kind of uh, fitness. They're, they're both not 100% right yet, but they're, they're getting there. So if they play well at the weekend, then it's going to be an exceedingly tough game. Yeah, I, I would go along with that. Uh, Steve, where do you think City are weak? So wh- where's the kind of... If you, look, if you look at the game tomorrow and you look at the way that Chelsea play, where is this game won or lost? Well, it's lost... Well, sorry, it's won, rather, uh, up front for City because... I was concerned about Phil Foden being out. I was concerned about Raz being out. I was concerned about Mahrez being out. 
Foden and Mares have scored six of our last 20 goals. But then, in the last month alone, we've had 14 different goal scorers. Mm. That is stunning. I mean, that's just unbelievable. 14 different goal scorers in the last four weeks. It's just incredible. So, we'll always score. I mean, like as Chris says in, on the pod um, from time to time, it's the system. You know, the individuals, of course, make a difference. But with City, it's the system. Um, and so I look at the, the talent we still have. Um, I look at Jesus, who played so well at Stamford Bridge. Um, seven assists this season from Jesus. And yeah, I'm, I'm confident in scoring goals. So that would be, if I initially looked at it, a concern with, with some important players missing. But then when you start looking at the facts and figures, nah, it, it's not a great concern for me. Okay. Chris, same question for you, really. Do you do you think City have a weakness that that Chelsea can exploit, or is this more a case of you know? I mean, I guess my the, the reason I keep framing the question like that is that a, a lot is made of the FA Cup semi final defeat and the Champions League defeat uh, last season, right? And a lot is made of Tuchel's record against Pep since he's come to England. Um, and I kind of I, I I felt back then, and I feel now that the semi-final was a heavily rotated team, and the Champions League final. I don't necessarily think that Chelsea massively outplayed us. I think that you know they were mentally stronger than us on the night. But is there a weakness? Is there something that Chelsea can go at in this City team? If you look at the form that they're in right now, so I think that City are a different team than the one that lost the Champions League final. Yeah. Um, mentally. I think I think many things have changed. I think, I think, and I bang the same drum, I think the system has become even more, has become even stronger. It's yeah. become even more the, 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 the dominant force. We no longer, I, there are certain players who I'd rather be in the, in the first 11, but there isn't a player where if they're not there, I think we are going to lose today. The, 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 because because the, the squad is so holistic and they can play in so many different positions. I think also what's changed, I think we're even more patient than we've ever been. I no longer worry if we go in half-time, nil-nil, um, because I think it's fine. As long as they keep playing and they stay patient, a, a goal will, um, will emerge. And we've seen that on several occasions this season for me where where we can be exploited i think is on the flank sometimes because if chelsea choose a back three to play a back three their wing backs will play a really important role in terms of counter attack and that's where our full backs need to have a great deal of discipline to be able to protect our our, our center halves but again it will depend on what chelsea choose to 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 play i think the midfield will play a significant role if if we go toe to toe with them because they've got that you know if, if kante is coming back to form then that will be a significant thing but i don't in terms of an obvious weakness i i just don't see it anymore i never i never dreamed in you know that i'd ever say that about uh a city team, but when we've got certain players missing, it doesn't worry me uh, as much as it would have done two seasons ago, maybe. Now, mm. obviously, so much of the context of that is 
you have to play who is in front of you. And Chelsea do offer threats if they're allowed to capitalise on any mistakes, any loss of possession. And that, for me, is against Chelsea, a bit like against Liverpool, you're playing the two top teams. Possession is everything. Because both of those teams, if you lose possession and, you're not, and your formation isn't, doesn't react quickly, that's where you get punished. It's not individual players' fault. It's because the formation in the system doesn't reset itself quickly enough. So for, for, it will be key that City, even if the goals don't come quickly, is to keep the possession and suffocate in order to, to be able to impose their will uh, on the game. Because teams like Chelsea can exploit that if, if you lose that. Steve, um, is a point enough for City? I would say so, yeah. Um, even factoring in, you know, that Liverpool may well get three points this weekend, a, a point against Chelsea, certainly, for me, would, would effectively end Chelsea's title challenge. And as distant as that title challenge is right now, they're still there, you know, there's yeah. still a consideration, and it would just end it. Um, it would mean basically we have one team to kind of um, look back in our re- rearview mirror to. Um, so I would I would take a draw, although I just don't believe that's going to be the case. I think we're going to be it's going to be a win. You look at the players missing for Chelsea, and it's all defensive kind of weaknesses they've got. Um, Chilwell and James are huge for them. That's huge um, for them. That for, from City's yeah. point of view. Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but from City's no, point of view, I feel as though that's probably the big, big, big thing is the fact yeah. that those two aren't available because I think that their performances, particularly in the Champions League, along with Kante, the way that those two played was absolutely crucial to Chelsea being able to exploit City in certain moments of the game. Absolutely. And, and as with Quetta and Alonso, are two players I've rated in the past, I don't think they're at the same level now. Mm. Um, so it is a downgrade on those two. And... Chalaba, you know, is is out, and no one ever mentions Chalaba. But I had to write an article recently. What a ball like this was! I had to go through every single Chelsea game this season, um, and look at all the player ratings from about four or five different newspapers, and then top them all up and get a kind of average. Took me forever. Chalaba was right up there. I mean, he was wow. consistently eight out of ten every week, week in, week out. So he's missing. Mendy, of course, is missing in goal. Um, they've got Thiago Silva back, but. Yeah, this is a very different defence to the one that Tuchel would play ordinarily, um, and that's where we we will will exploit them. Mm. Of all their abs- sorry, of all their absences, for me, the Mendy one is is, is critical. It's, yeah. it's absolutely massive because it isn't it, it isn't just about the reassurance he gives to his bat line. It isn't just about the fact he's a world class goalkeeper, but Kepper is coming in. And Kepa's had very little first team action, particularly at a game of the intensity which which this will be. And I think that will really, you know, if you look at Kepa, if so, you look at Mendy's performance against us last year when we won one nil. He, you know, he he prevented the scoreline being a lot a lot mm. more flattering. You know, so I, I think his absence is really really critical, and 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 Mendy distributes far better from the bat than Kepa does. So I, I, I think that's going to be a significant miss for, for Chelsea. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see how Kepa does under City's press. And it'll be interesting to see, I think, 
I expect City to press as high and as aggressively as they did at Stamford Bridge. Uh, and that asks a lot of the Chelsea goalkeeper. It really does. And you wonder whether in anticipation of that, Lukaku does play and there is a little bit of, you know what, actually, let's go back to front from Chelsea's point of view. Let's not try and build from the back. With James out, with Chilwell out, you know, you kind of, you almost bypass City's press by by trying to to go over it. I wouldn't, to be honest, I wouldn't put it past Tuchel to do that because he's not, one of the things that I admire about Tuchel is that he's not married to a system He'll, he'll look at the team in front of him that he's got to play. He'll look at his opposition and he'll he'll figure out what the best way to beat them is. And maybe with the City team, um, with the injuries that they've got, that might be the way to uh, to do it, to get around it. Um, okay, let's begin to kind of bring this round. Now, look, in terms of lineups, I, it's it's it's... It's impossible to know who's available and who's not available. I talked to Jack Gorn last night, who basically said, I believe most of the people that had COVID last week are back, but I also believe that there might be one or two others who have now got, who are now COVID positive. So yeah, it just, it's almost impossible to know. So let's pretend COVID ain't here. In terms of the, in terms of the fit and available players from an injury, an AFCON point of view. Steve, I'm going to start with you. What's the team that you'd like to see put out tomorrow? Well, I just want to throw in a name, actually, which isn't COVID-related, but is a doubt, and we don't know. So, John Stones, we have no idea how fit he is. Um, he's available, by all accounts, but, you know, is he 100%? So, I don't believe that Stones is going to start. I think it will be Laporte take his place. Cancelo, uh, left-back, uh, Walker, right-back. Uh, Diaz, of course. Uh, Edison, of course. Um, midfield, I would go with Rodri and I would go with De Bruyne and Bernardo. Um, up front, it gets interesting. I think... I mean, we don't know if Raz has COVID or not. We don't know if, if kind of how ill he is. It says on certain websites that he, he you know, he, he does have it. Um, and I've been kind of given a 75% chance of him not being available. So I, that's all, you know, I, I, I don't know for sure. With that in mind, I believe Grealish will start on the left and Jesus on the right. Um, it's it's, mm, it, it's, a, it's a tricky one, to be honest. Um, I, I, I'm going to defer to Chris. What do you think on the front three, Chris? Well, it's interesting because the lineup you just described then is effectively the lineup that we put out for them when we play them at their place. Uh, apart yeah, from yeah. apart from Foden as the false nine, yeah. So you know, so and 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 I, and looking back at that lineup, I was thinking, right, well, that lineup controlled Chelsea uh, superbly. So so, what would I want different now? Back four, I'd, I'd have the same as you. Middle three, I'd have the same as you. And yeah, the front three that it feels like it comes more down to availability. Um, if all the players were available. Then uh, minus Mares, obviously, because he's away on Af- uh, African Cup ne- uh, duty. But I would want Foden in there. I would want um, Raz in there, and maybe Gabby. I'd, I'd probably, but F- Foden's definitely got COVID, hasn't he? Well, look, here's the thing. I mean, I, I appreciate what he you're saying, Sam. Yeah, but I appreciate what you're it, saying. Right. But I, you know, I read an article this week about the effects that COVID's having on the players in terms of their first three or four games back. Um, and it was really disturbing to read, you know. And so, whether 
Phil Start is another matter. I, I don't believe he will. Um, he, even if, you know, he's had COVID and he's over it now, will he start in such a frenetic game? I don't know. Well, I think the, I issue, say, that, I think the issue that so, you've got there, Steve, is that it wasn't just Phil that had COVID. Phil had COVID, Grealish had COVID, Sterling had COVID. So if you remove them as options, if you go, well, even if they, even if they're no longer testing positive, they're not available for contention, makes it very difficult to pick an 11. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is why basically I got stuck on the actual kind of false nine role. And, and it, yeah, it, it, more than likely it will be Foden, but. I, I just, it's so hard right now. I mean, to give, to put it into context, after this pod, I've got to write a preview of Tottenham Arsenal. Mm. At any point of writing this article, the game could be postponed. I believe it will be postponed in North London Derby. And mm. um, we just don't know where we stand right now, do we? No, it's true. It's very true. I mean, look, that's why I asked the question of if everybody's, co- yeah, forget yeah, about COVID, yeah. if everybody's fit. I think for me, um, I guess the interesting thing is, do you play De Bruyne in the midfield three, yeah? And then you play Grealish, Foden, Sterling, or Grealish, Foden, Jesus, or some combination of that collection of players? Or do you push Kev into the front three, play Gundo, and then it makes it slightly easier in the sense that you've then got, you've got a few players to choose from for the two positions. And I've got a sneaky suspicion that tomorrow he might go with Gundo in the midfield three, Kev as a, a, a false nine, and then play Foden one side, Sterling the other side, or Grealish one side, Sterling the other side. You see what I mean? That you kind of, because you know Kev's available, you know he's fit, you know Gundo's available, you know he's fit, you know Bernardo's available, you know he's fit. Same with Rodri. That this is this is if they haven't tested positive in the last twenty four hours, and then it makes it easier in terms of those front players who have had COVID. So maybe that's the way that I would uh, that's the uh, way that I would approach. I think it. I think that's a decent shot, and what that would definitely do is give is give us that control over the midfield, uh, yes. particularly with, with Gundo alongside uh, Rodri with that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, we always know it's a futile exercise to try and predict <laughs> Guardiola's lineup. I was but close even, with the FA Cup. I was yeah, like, yeah, my, yeah. my FA Cup lineup was out by like one player or something like that. But, player, yeah. but it's even more challenging now because of availability of players in terms Definitely. of fitness levels and, 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 and COVID. I still think that we, we the three of us now describe two or three different c- c- configurations. None of those configurations give me cause for concern. And Great. which yeah, goes exactly. back to the point yeah, yeah. I was making yeah. before, saying no there, there are like there are no players that are not expendable. And by that I mean I mean, you know, we value them massively. But if they drop out, the system allows another player to be able to come in. And and, and and we also know that whoever they play in that front three, there will be incredible rotation going on. The whole particularly if we are camping ourselves in the Chelsea half if they choose to sit back so again it, that for me is that confidence I was referring to earlier in the pod about it it doesn't worry me like it used to worry me and the patience uh, uh, as well I'd love to go 4 nil up like we did when we played Chelsea mm. um, when Negro you know, scored a hat-trick but if it doesn't it doesn't as long I, I, I really want I take a draw and a loss we could manage but I really want to have a win here so, so that's one less element of the of a Premier yeah. League title push that we have to worry about. Mm. I think the thing for me is very much that 
with the amount of points that are left to play for and the quality of, of Liverpool and Chelsea's teams, um, I don't think that it's a foregone conclusion because there's just too many points to play for. But what I would say is that if we do beat Chelsea, the psychological hammer blow to Chelsea and Liverpool is probably what kills it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, right. So, Steve, give me a score prediction. I'm going 3-1 City. Um, and, and I'd even be prepared to go higher, to be honest. I, I should say that th- three out of the last four games of it, when we've met has been 1-0. Um, I think there's going to be loads of goals in this. So, yeah, three. Uh, no, you know what? 4-1. 4-1 City. Oof. Chris? Um, I think I think Chelsea might be a little bit more robust than that. I'm going to go 2-0. Nice. City, clearly. Nice. 5-1 own... City. <laughs> <laughs> My own feeling, weirdly enough, is that the game lands at something like 2-2. That, you know, it even if it starts a little bit cagey, cagey and, and, and Chelsea try and be solid and try and play on the counter-attack, I think that if and when City score the first goal, it becomes that Liverpool-Chelsea game immediately because Chelsea will open up and City will open up and, you know, then it's just two big teams throwing big punches. So I can see it landing in a draw. Um, right, listen, before we go, before we wrap this up, very quickly, obviously the transfer window is open. There's been some bits of business in the last couple of weeks that have caught my eye. Um, so I thought it'd be interesting just to have a little chat about those. Steve, I'm going to start with you and with Newcastle. Um, I'll frame this very quickly by saying one of the things, again, like I cannot believe how openly people are willing Newcastle to fail. Mm. And I'm not talking about other supporters. I'm talking about the media. Yeah, Mm. I'm talking about people whose job it is meant to be to try and be a little bit objective. And these people are willing Newcastle to fail, um, which is just very odd. You know, to, to turn a club and a supporter base into villains so quickly... Such a bizarre behaviour. But notwithstanding that, Kieran Trippier, Chris Wood, people are going, that's not what I bet that's not what Newcastle fans were expecting. Yeah, they were Mbappe. It's, it's a bit like, <laughs> no, I mean, if you, I listen to sensible Newcastle fans, sensible Newcastle fans said, we need to sign players to stay up, not sign players to qualify for the Champions League. So no matter what tripe other people are talking about what Newcastle fans wanted, I think we can say sensibly, the sensible ones, this is the type of transfer they were looking at. So when you look at Trippier and you look at Wood, do you think that's a step towards survival for them? Yeah, I think they're two excellent, sensible signings. Um, my favourite um, kind of bit of misinformation, if you like, what you're referring to there from the media, um, I, I don't think it was an actual journalist, I think it was kind of a, a blogger, fan blogger, but still it was a rival fan saying, um, oh, Newcastle will be gutted at the signing Wood, you know, kind of this tall, limbering centre-forward kind of... And then a Newcastle writer responded with, yeah, because infamously Newcastle hate tall, powerful centre-forwards. You know what I mean? It's like we just don't understand that football club at all. No. If someone said to me, name a fan base who loves having, you know, a a tall, powerful (laughs) centre-forward, I would say Newcastle United. Um, But anyway, regardless, Chris Ward, a goal every 200 minutes in the Premier League uh, across several seasons. A really shrewd and really kind of sensible buy, particularly as it weakens Burnley as well, a direct uh, relegation rival. 
Uh, Kieran Trippier, so recently a La Liga winner with Atletico. Um, he, strength, he strengthens, basically. He uh, immediately improves one-fifth of their defence. And my God, it's a defence that needs improving. Uh, and all four, £15 million pounds if you include add-ons. So, really sensible buys. Um, and they're looking, apparently, to get um, Van der Beek. So, if they do bring him in, again, that's, that's a quite a clever signing. Um, and then they've really improved all three aspects of their team. So, for a decent amount of money, you know. So, yeah, I'm all in favour of that. I think they've done well there. Do you think that they will stay up? I believe they will, yeah. I think they've got a touch of momentum about them now. I think the tide is turning just a little bit. There's going to be three worst teams in them by the season's end. Um, with them, it, it really comes down to their defence, um, which is why the, the signing of Trippi is so important. If they do bring Botman in, or if they do bring a centre-back in, who settles them mutually, um and has half at the effect that Diaz had on City, you know, immediately, then, yeah, I think they, they will stay up. Mm. Um, Chris, I want to ask you about Burnley. Um, in in uh, At the danger of sounding like a little bit of a conspiracy theorist. Um, are they being asset stripped by an American hedge fund? And should it be a bigger story than than it has been? The fact that what has gone from Burnley to Newcastle? Well, it's because the narrative is focused on Newcastle, isn't it? And yeah. it's, you know, that, 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 that's why the, the impact on Burnley is, is of a, a much lesser concern. I think the stats about Wood do tell a story that, that this season, he's not having his best season. No. Um, and. The owners could be thinking, look, we, we, there's, a, there's a huge possibility that we're going to get relegated. And, I, and you would see a lot of shifts. And so they might be generating a certain amount of um, uh, cash so they, can, so they can then survive in the championship and, they, and, and come back again. Um, so it, it feels, it, we've, I've, we say this so many times, Burnley are going to go down this season. They're going to go down this season. But, but they look... The, they look the, the the I've never seen them look as yeah. poorly resourced and as poor. They're so they're so lacking in any cohesion at all, really. Please, and, footballing uh, gods, let this be the season <laughs> that we get rid yeah, of Dyson, yeah. we get rid of and, Burnley. And the thing is, and, and I have no malice or, or ill will towards Burnley fans at all. And, and really, oh, yeah. it, you know, it, it, well, it, it doesn't really like it, 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 you know. It's kind of if Bur- I guess the thing is. Burnley are like a, a, a guest at your party. If, they, if they're there, they're there. And if they're not, they're not. Who cares? And, and I, th- I kind of feel like that about Burnley. It, it, is that what they, what they used to offer as, as a team, they don't even offer that anymore. And I mm. think Daesh is fatigued. And I think, I think he, he hit his ceiling two or three seasons ago. So, but I don't know. It's, it's, with Newcastle, I, I I kind of agree with Steve, but the problem with Newcastle again is about lack of cohesion. I'm thinking, how is Chris Wood going to play alongside Saint Maximan, Joel Linton? I, I I just I don't see how those the piece of those puzzle that puzzle comes together, and there is a severe mentality issue at that club. And 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 I and I, even if they get Van der Beek, I'm thinking, okay, but but how 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 is he going to make that work? 
Um, but it might just be, as we've said, that Newcastle survive by default rather than by design simply because there are three teams that are, are yeah, worse than them. And it might just be that. But Newcastle are damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. Their key objective is stay up. And yeah. they're trying to bring in players who they think can maximise the possibility uh, of that. Um, and yeah, and for Burnley, who knows? Who, who knows? And if, if I'm honest, I don't really care. Uh, well, and that probably yeah. says a lot about how I feel about Burnley. But they're taking up a place in the Premier League. No <laughs> one cares about them. Uh, and this is how bad Burnley are. They only look slightly good against United. I mean, United. <laughs> it's, it's so true, though, isn't it? United have made Newcastle look like world beaters. They've made everyone look like world. Burnley only looks slightly good at Old Trafford. So you think, shit, yeah. you're really in trouble. Well, you know what? That's a very nice segue into Man United's opponents this weekend. Aston Villa, who have added uh, Luca Dean and uh, Coutinho to their squad. And sounds like they're not done with their business either. Um, Steve. Villa, like you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of excitement around Villa, and there's a lot of you know excitement around Gerard. I can't help but feel they've spent an awful lot of money in the last couple of years, um, and I can't help but feel that there's a little bit of a I don't know, like I can't quite put my finger on it. I'm not. I think Luca Dean's a top player. I like him a lot, and I'd have had him at City. Coutinho, I think is finished. We'll see, but for me, I think. I think he is very much finished. But in general, when you look at their spending, do you think that they're going to get value? Do you think Gerard is the real deal here? You know what? I hate to say this, but Gerard is looking like the real deal. Whether he is or not, only time will tell. But he is, at this point in time, looking to be like the real deal. By which I mean, you know, I'm not talking about the absolute elite of coaches, but that he is going to be a Premier League coach of some substance. Um and the, the signings kind of, you know, El Ghazi they've brought in as well, um, who doesn't pull up a great deal of trees, but, you know, he's a, a creative player who can perform on his day. Um, Luca Dean's a really good signing for him. Coutinho, it's an interesting one, that, isn't it? I mean, I keep seeing people put up his stats and you think, yeah, that's from 2016. You know, it's we can pull up some similar stats of other players at the, around that time and, and it's just not relevant anymore. So we'll wait and see. Um, I think the... the, the of his transfer window, Aston Villa's business is the most interesting. I, I would have thought it was going to be Newcastle's, but it turns out it's Villa's. Okay, fair enough. I'm I'm on the fence. I'm I'm interested to see uh, how how the the second half of the season plays out for Villa and whether you know they do push on under Gerrard um, and whether those. I mean, they've got, they've signed they've signed a lot of players, and it'll be interesting to see how they uh, how they all gel. Together, Coutinho is Coutinho alone. Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a loan with an option to buy, so he could yes. end up back at uh, back at Barcelona. I mean, uh, Coutinho brings a tremendous amount of baggage because I mean, his he's he is by far the most disastrous signing that Barcelona ever made. Yeah, and and, and and you know, and and, and I am I'm, I'm curious to see the impact that's had on him as an individual. I guess I guess I'm just curious about what the plan is because currently what Villa are in 14th right so so they're, they're, they're you know they're a good like they're 11 points away for, for, from the drop zone but it's what what is Villa's what is Villa's ambition this season and how does the bringing in of Coutinho 
Lucas Digne, I get, and I agree, I said, I would have him at City. I think he's an outstanding left-back. And I said this last season, if he was available, I'd grab him. But Coutinho, I just, I just don't know kind of how that would, you know, what, what the plan is, how they're going to utilise him. Coutinho doesn't, has never struck me as, as a team player who adapts to a system. And I just wonder what they're aiming for. Are they, are they aiming to try and push, push on and get, you know, European places or are they avoiding relic to not get sucked into the relegation or are they just going to galvanize and get mid table so yeah I, I think the, I think the Coutinho one feels a little bit like we had Grealish so we need to get somebody who's similar flair yeah. but I also think it's a, it's a marquee move and it, it grabs a certain amount of attention for them whether Gerard's a real deal who knows yeah I think uh, 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 Solskjaer had an amazing first half of a season so you know what I mean, and, 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 and then it went tits up. So Absolutely. I think it's, it's hard to gauge. I think the weird thing with Coutinho is I don't necessarily think that Gerard's getting the best out of Buendia right now. Um, so to bring in a and other quote unquote mm. attacking player seems you know seems a little little bit OTT. And I think the other thing, and this is just more a general narrative thing, to bring this background to Newcastle in a way. I think if Newcastle had spent the money that. Uh, Aston Villa have actually spent and were sat in 14th, yeah, I think there'd be a lot of noise about how badly that money had been spent and how uh, poorly the club were doing. It it does surprise me that Aston Villa are 14th and getting the the positive headlines that they're getting when, you know, I mean, yeah, like Palace, Brentford, Southampton are all above them right now. Now, granted, Villa have got one game in hand, but it's just the one game. Um, And even if they win that game in hand, it only puts them 11th. And then Leicester in 10th have got two games in hand on them. So it's just, you know, I think that the the reality and the perception of, of, of what Villa have done and what Gerard has achieved or is achieving seems slightly off to me. But maybe I'll be proven wrong come the, uh, come the end of the season. Um, right. Gentlemen, 65 minutes stay. I'm so sorry. I'm, I, I, keep, <laughs> I, keep making these, I keep making these Friday shows way longer than they need to be, but hey, what can we do? Um, so, Mr. Tudor, thank you very much, and thank you for letting me sit in your chair. Absolute pleasure, mate. I apologise for that kind of smell. That was there when I bought the chair, I promise you. So. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Chris, thank you very much. Pleasure as always. Thanks, lads. To everybody who listened, thank you very much. This was the Friday show. If you like what we do, go over to the 9320 website, sign up for the 9320 player where you get hours and hours of podcasts every week. Um, in the meantime, be safe, be well, and as always, up the blues. <laughs>